two days after the Taliban took over the Afghan capital, Kabul. A 19-year-old player on the Afghan women's soccer team was huddled in her home. She reached out to a former player and in a video call showed the desperate situation she was in. Her eyes were completely bloodshot. She was crying. She's, you know, in extreme distress. She's pulling back a curtain and looking, pointing out the window, gesturing out the window to where there are armed men, presumably Taliban fighters, walking about. And this woman has a gun in her other hand. And she's saying, I'm going to shoot myself. I'd rather die than have them put a hand on me. The person receiving this video call was Halida Popol. Halida is a former captain of the soccer team, but she was no longer in the country. She now lives in Denmark. Here she is talking about the call. By the way, in the recording of the interview, you'll hear typing in the background. And I was like telling her, like, listen, we are strong. We are not giving up. We just like, we didn't fight this long to just shoot ourselves. We are not a loser. We are winner. You trust me. You just follow what I'm saying. I will not leave you. I will do everything possible to make sure that you're safe and protected. To be truly safe, Khalida knew that player would have to leave the country. And it wasn't just that one player. The whole of the Afghan women's soccer team would have to leave too. And many turned to Khalida. She said, trust me, I'm going to do my best to get you out. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, September 10th. Coming up on the show, the escape of the Afghan women's soccer team and the woman who got them out. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Our colleague Drew Hinshaw spoke with Halida Popol recently. And Halida told him she started playing soccer in Afghanistan after the U.S.-led coalition ousted the Taliban in 2001. Sports were generally frowned upon during the Taliban's rule before 9-11. And women's sports were certainly frowned upon. And then almost as soon as the U.S. showed up in late 2001, you had teenage girls playing soccer, you know, kind of testing the limits of what is a very socially conservative society. In 2007, Halida helped create the Afghan national women's team. And the team got off to a shaky start. In one early tournament, they lost every match by at least 17 goals. But it wasn't all about performance. Halida remembers how much it meant to her to be able to wear the jersey. The best, best ever feeling in my life when I wear that, I saw the flag of our country when the national anthem was played, and I started, like, having tears in my eyes. It was like winning a trophy. Winning the players felt like if people could see their women's team competing on the world stage, it would 
instill some national pride and maybe change attitudes back home and open things up for, for women's sports. But even without the Taliban in charge, playing soccer was always an uphill battle for these women. It wasn't as simple as they started playing soccer and got uniforms and let the games begin. This was a constant fight for space, for society's approval, uh, for their rights to play this game. And that's under American occupation. Before the American occupation, it would have been impossible. Men threw rocks at the team buses. Players' families asked them to quit. And the country's soccer federation wouldn't give the team a proper field to play on. So eventually, the U.S. Embassy let the team practice on its lawn. But even there, it wasn't safe. At one point, there was an attack on the part of the U.S. Embassy where they would practice, and it happened in the time when they would have been practicing. That day, the coach was sick, so they weren't there. But the players always understood it as this was an attack on us. We were the targets here. What did the players do in the face of this resistance to them playing the sport? Some players quit. You know, they just couldn't do it. Some players kept playing. By the end of it, though, you know, you had players who spoke out against the Taliban, who, you know, did interviews where they talked about the importance of women's rights. Halida was one of those outspoken women, and that made her a target. In 2011, a gunman fired into her stopped car. He missed, but she decided it wasn't safe for her anymore and fled the country. She ended up in Denmark, where she's lived ever since. And this summer, as the U.S. prepared to leave Afghanistan, she watched from afar as the Taliban quickly took control. That's when she started getting video calls and messages from players around the country, many of whom she'd never met before. And they were desperate. You can really hear how afraid they were in these voice messages that they were sending Halida. And they were saying, you know, we need to get out. We're, we're in trouble. This is bad. The Taliban was knocking on their doors, stopping them at checkpoints. One of the women had her house burned down. The incoming messages were making the situation clear to Halida. These players needed to get out. And many hoped to bring family with them. In all, more than two dozen players reached out. Counting family, that number swelled to more than 100. Khalida and some people in her network started working around the clock. They sent messages to every powerful person, every organization, every government official they could think of, trying to see if any country would give the players the documents they needed to get out. And at the same time, Khalida was trying to keep up the team's morale. She was just constantly on her phone or on a device trying to, you know, encourage these women to keep their hopes up while also trying to get them visas and get them out. I mean, she was in a total adrenaline rush of not sleeping or eating for, for days. It was nonstop, and I remember I was like, I felt vomiting because I didn't sleep, right? So I felt like, okay, my hands were so shaking and my, my, my feet was shaking. So like I had to stay like together, otherwise it was just shaking. Like my body was alert, alert and alert. Despite all this work, she wasn't having much luck. But then she got a glimmer of hope from an unlikely source. The big break is Australia, which is sort of a famously restrictive immigration policy. But there was a member of parliament there that started advocating for them. There was a local soccer star, Craig Foster, who called the foreign minister. 
And uh, the foreign minister happened to be uh, also the minister for women's affairs. And it took, you know, several days of doing all this paperwork. Basically, what the players got was a letter saying that they had submitted an application for an Australian visa. That was it. You know, it wasn't you've got your visa. It's this is a confirmation that you have applied for a visa. And that's it. But getting the Australian papers, that would turn out to be the easier part. The next step would be much more difficult. She needed to get more than 100 people on a plane. So Halida directed the soccer players and their families to gather outside the Kabul airport. The rendezvous point is a gas station about 200 meters from the airport. And they all meet there. I mean, more than 100 people. They're, you know, they're dressed in sneakers, their backpacks, everything in their backpacks to start a new life. They're wearing COVID face masks. They're all there, gathered this big pack of people. They get to the gate, but it's locked and no one is there to open it. They sit down on the pavement. Pretty soon an entire day goes by with no answer on when someone is going to meet them and they fall asleep. So they were stuck outside for all of Saturday and um, that's where things go wrong. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Citizen M. There's no better feeling than finishing work for the day, sipping an ice-cold soda and nuzzling down into a Citizen M bed. Recharge your brain and batteries at Citizen M Hotels. They're in the tech cities, Menlo Park, Miami, Austin, New York, San Francisco, where people like you work, sleep, and play. Book now at citizenm.com slash the journal. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing carefully, consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. After the team spent the night on the pavement outside the Kabul airport, and after a few more false starts, Khalida sent them to yet another gate. The problem there is, in between where they're standing and the main gate is the Taliban, the very group of people that they're fleeing, the group of people that they've grown up with these horror stories of how the Taliban treat people. And they're cracking whips and firing guns into the air, and they've got to make it past these guys. Adding to the confusion, the team has been split up. You know, people have gotten split in the crowds. Families have gotten separated. You know, these players are trying to, like, inch along with their exhausted relatives, including small children. And the crowd is just pushing forward. Elbows everywhere. People are stepping on each other. It is really, um, it's, it's pandemonium. And at the end of all these obstacles is an even denser and more chaotic crowd gathered around the entrance. And no way to get to the front. But there was a ditch that ran close to the gate a sewage ditch. And many of the soccer players decided to use the ditch to try to make it past the crowd. I mean, this is where this gets really desperate and where Khalidus thought maybe it wasn't going to work. It, they were in the sewage for hours. They felt like giving up. Um, 
People were fainting, struggling to stand. They were complaining that it was difficult to breathe. There were so many people. The team members, just one after another, there's a time it's like 2.30 in the morning in Copenhagen. They've been doing this for two days and Halida gets you know more than 40 messages in really the span of minutes. It's just like boom, 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 one after the next. And there are voice messages from players who are just one after the other, just expressing complete despair because they're stuck in these crowds. They've been injured, they're struggling, and they're thinking about giving up. Like maybe it's just it's not going to happen. So what does she tell them to do? Uh, she, the, you know, she says something to the effect of like, I hate, I hate losing. We're going to win. The, the gate is the trophy. We're going to, that's what your trophy. I want you to get to the gate. She gives them a pep talk. Here's Halida. Their body is exhausted and they have been fighting for such a long time. So while I'm stressed, I'm worried and my brain is, doesn't work. So what is it that I can use? And I just close my eyes saying that this is a, a game we are going to play and we are not giving up. The other thing she says shortly after, around the same time, is she says, you know, some of you are struggling with your families. I say, like, listen, I understand you have been trying for two nights now, three nights or two nights, trying to get through. You cannot, you have, you have not succeed with this big group. You're talking about your families, your parents, how they are like struggling, that they are not even able to walk. So now it's the time to make this call. I know it's difficult and it's sad, it's tough. Leave your families behind. Say goodbye to them. You gotta get out. Some of them had already been separated from their families without a chance to say goodbye. Just in a crowd, you know, you lose the grip on your sibling's hand and that's it. You don't see them again. Um, Others at this moment started to say kind of tearful goodbyes, you know, a quick goodbye. Some of the group that set out from the rendezvous point did end up making it to the gate. Their next objective was to find the Australians. The Australian troops at the airport have been told that there's these footballers coming. The women get to this gate. You know, they just see some, you know, foreigners. The foreigners are actually from Sweden. And they just say, footballers, Australia. And that's enough for the Swedes standing there. The Swedes don't even look at their documents. After all of that work to get these documents, the Swedes just pick them up, pull them into the airport. There's like a razor wire there and there's like a concrete wall and the, and the, the Swedish troops just lift them up out of the sewage, basically, and just take them you know, over the wall and kind of into the airport. And now they're in the airport compound. It's horrible. There's no food, no water, no sanitation, but it's better than being in this crowd and you are one step closer to getting on that plane. Finally, the first group of players made it through. But they were worried about their teammates who were still in the crowd. So they go and look for help. And they find a Marine, a Lance Corporal Kareem Nakui, who's from California and who is one of the Marines stationed at this airport and um, responsible for, you know, helping organize this evacuation on the ground. And they say, hey, we've got these other players there in the crowd. Can you help us? He walks out into the crowd and finds their friends and starts pulling them over. You know, they're the fellow players, one after the next. Like, oh, this one, this one, this one, they're with us. He starts pulling them, you know, through the crowd and over the wall and into the airport to, to safety. For the next couple days, more players were making it into the airport, but not all. Some players still couldn't get in. And then, Halida had a tough decision to make. She'd been hearing warnings of a terror attack at the airport. So she told the remaining women that trying to escape was no longer worth the risk. On Thursday, she called it off and said, no more. 
that evening there was an attack and, you know, there was this huge suicide bomb followed by gunfire right at the very gate where these players had been waiting, where they'd been standing and where more would have probably been waiting if she hadn't called it off. Nearly 200 civilians were killed. Uh, more than a, a dozen U.S. service people were killed, including, you know, Lance Corporal Nikui, the um, Marine who had helped the players get through. Ultimately, 86 people, soccer players, but also their families, are able to make it on one of these transporter planes leaving the country. What does this story show about the evacuation of Kabul? This evacuation, I think, like, is often sadly the case. The people who made it out, it was a mixture of luck and just somebody somewhere along the way showing a bit of humanity to these young soccer players. Um... You know, there are people who worked for the U.S. government for years who were interpreters who were on our list who didn't make it out. You know, there are, there are U.S. citizens who didn't make it out. There was tens of thousands of people who were better positioned in some ways to make it out than these soccer players. All they had when they started off was this story. We're soccer players. We are this new generation of Afghan women, and we need to leave. And I think what ultimately got them out was people hearing that story and saying, you know what, I want to help. It came down to that, you know, this kind of small gestures of humanity. How does Halita feel now? I think, I think exhausted. <laughs> I start with exhausted. Um, but also, I mean, what she said, what, I, what stuck with me was um, she feels that this talk of democracy in, in Afghanistan was like a play. And they just turned off the lights. And everyone who believed in it is stuck on stage. I was like, wait, for two decades you sold us the idea of the war for democracy. Now all people, they're just left for good. All this democracy talks and human rights talks were just another show, show is over. Everybody's going home. Everybody's talking about like wrap up. We are taking our things, we are just getting out. And all the people who are being on stage, they're just left alone on darkness. The show is over. That's all for today, Friday, September 10th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to Joe Parkinson for his reporting on this story. Your hosts are Ryan Knudsen and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is produced by Priscilla Alabi, Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Martin Kessler, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Matthew Sherman, Matthew Schultz, and Annie Rose Strasser. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner, Nathan Singapak, and Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Peter Leonard, Billy Libby, Bobby Lord, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka and Matthew Wolfe. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.